Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here tonight to hear from your word, to worship you. Our prayer is that our worship has indeed been honoring to you and glorifying to you, that these words we sing in response to your word being proclaimed to us throughout this service would be a sweet aroma to you and a sweet sound to your ears. May you speak through your all too imperfect and feeble servant's lips now to those you've gathered. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat, gang, and thanks for, uh, thanks for coming out tonight to Epiphany. We've got a small little group here tonight, but uh, we've got a, uh, a powerful word to proclaim. We're in the second week of Advent, as you can see by the uh, lighted wreath next to me over here. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Of course, this is an Advent text because Advent's all about preparing us for, for the coming of the Lord. And it's both the first and the second coming. Both of those comings are covered in uh, this season of Advent. This text tonight uh, has specifically to do with, of course, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So it has to do with his first coming. But there are elements that relate to, uh, to his second coming. Uh, to his return as well. So Matthew 3 verses 1 through 17. The words will be up on the screen for you to follow along. It reads like this. In those days John the Baptist uh, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
end of reading. Uh, Samuel Johnson, great 18th century writer and uh, Christian, was determined to change. He was absolutely determined to change. He was tired of waking up too late and not spending enough time in prayer. He knew this is what the Lord would have him do, after all. So from then on, he was going to take an entirely different path. He would repent of his tendency toward laziness and resolve to move forward with different habits. In his diary entry from 1738, he spells out a very simple prayer to God, asking for the ability to do just that. Quote, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. That's it. And from that point on, Samuel Johnson had repented, truly repented. But then there's his diary entry from 1757, 19 years later, in which he writes this, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. All right, now he's really serious. He's now really, truly repented. Diary entry. 1759, two years later, quote, enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 1761, I have received, I have resolved until I resolve that I'm afraid to resolve again. 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament has sunk into grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. 1764, five months later, he resolves to rise early, not later than six if I can. 1765, I purpose to rise at eight, because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie until two. 1769, I am not yet in the state to form any resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by eight and by degrees at six. 1775. When I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments which have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Therefore, he resolves to rise again at eight. 1781, three years before his death. I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. He then resolves to rise at eight and to avoid idleness again. To repent is a fairly easy thing to describe, but like our friend Samuel Johnson, not as easy to practice. Now, of course, repent means to literally turn around or to change your mind. The word in Greek is metanoia. Uh, in the Bible, when someone is said to uh, repent, it carries with it the idea that one is uh, 
consciously turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus Christ, turning toward God. In our text that was just read, we're introduced to John the Baptist, a familiar character to, I'm sure, many of you here tonight. Uh, and his job, his whole job, was to prepare the people of Israel, and by extension, even you and I today, because this is a living and active word, for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. And how would he do that? Well, he would call the people to make this spiritual U-turn of the sorts, to, to call them to reform, to go back to God, to repent. And so the question that's on the table, based on our text today, that I want to dig into is, are you, are, are you a truly repentant person? Let's see. First of all, John emphasizes a truly repentant person is someone who heeds the preached word. Who heeds the preached word. We certainly see that exemplified in this text. We're told in verse 1 that John was preaching even in the wilderness, the desert place, for people to come back to God. And they were heading out to him in droves. It's, it's a bit of a strange scene, frankly. In spite of the fact that John wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, which, by the way, that sounds totally weird and gross, but it wasn't actually all that uncommon. It wasn't unusual to eat such a snack back then at that time. But we read in verse 5, Then all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, maybe to have some of that delicious locust and honey treat. Certainly true repentance is always a response to the preached word of God. That word we're told creates faith. We've talked about this many times before. Romans 10, 17 declares that. It is the primary instrument God uses to draw human beings to himself. His preached word. His word isn't merely words. It has power. And yet, on the other hand, there were those that came to John that day that were not heeding his word at all. They were the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Sadducees. And John gets uh, not very seeker-friendly in his tone. You brood of vipers, you brood of snakes. There's no way to sort of misinterpret the meaning of those words. It's as harsh as it sounds. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It seems harsh. It seems difficult. But John, like Jesus after him, knew they hadn't showed up to hear him based on a submission to his word, based on a desire to hear God's word being spoken. As a matter of fact, we know that they didn't like him and were probably there just to trap him in something he said so that they could get him in trouble. The falsely repentant may indeed show up to church, even in the wilderness, but they do not heed the word. I'll never forget when I first became a pastor having to confront a person who was, I, I, I won't talk about anything in specific, but it was the first time as a pastor I had to confront somebody as a member of my congregation that was actively hurting other people in the congregation. He was actively doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. And it was... A real battle in my soul because of course you know like I got into 
I want to I want to preach and I want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people and the forgiveness of sins that he brings and yet there is this reality that I couldn't allow this person to continue hurting others and I had to confront this person and as I confronted this person it became very clear that this person even though he had been a part of the church for quite some time had not been in any way, shape, or fashion interested in heeding the word of God. It didn't have any, it just bounced off of him. A truly repentant person is someone who always listens and responds affirmatively to God's word. When he says go, then they go. And when he says jump, they say how high. And if that's your response to the word, well then you're a truly repentant person. Congrats. Also, you, you might be a truly repentant person if you confess your sins. That is clear in this text. Matthew reports that those who were coming to John were doing just that, confessing their sin. Now, certainly the beginning of the Christian life starts with confession. I mean, we kind of all know that. But it's not merely something done at one time. It's not something done at the beginning, but something done all the time. It's why we choose to do it each and every time we gather here at Epiphany. First John 1, who we, hear, who we hear from almost every week, speaking to believers, simply says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's actually an act of lying. It's an act, you're actually lying to, you're calling God a liar if you say you don't have sin. Even as believers, that's who John is writing to here. And then what does he say to do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, again, John wants to make this very clear, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The fact is there are fewer acts that you can do as a Christian that are more Christian than to regularly confess your sin. Unfortunately, my natural man, the flesh, the old Adam, whatever you want to call the sinner, doesn't really see a need for regular confession. That's certainly the case with the fake repenters in our text, the religious leaders, as John confronts them about their own sin. We don't read of an honest confession to him or to God or to anybody. We only go on to see in their lives a stubborn refusal to own up. A pride that refuses to acknowledge their need. It's the reason they wanted Jesus dead so much, because he exposed them as frauds. I went to a church years ago. I was invited by a friend of mine. Uh, it was her church for quite some time, and this is, I was, you know, 20 plus years ago. Uh, and I remember, I was a fairly new Christian. The preacher got up and talked about a conversation that he had had with a young convert to the faith and the young convert had confessed to this preacher that though he did believe and trust in Jesus for his salvation he still found himself struggling with sinful thoughts and actions the young convert was very troubled in his soul about his standing with God and this is what the preacher said I'll never forget it he told the young convert well then your conversion must not have been Genuine, my friend. 
For a true convert will never desire the things of this world anymore. And then he said, you must go into your prayer closet until God delivers you from these things. Then the preacher happily reported that the young man came back to him again a little later and told him that he finally had victory and was no longer struggling with sin. And that was sort of the crescendo of the message. As I heard this story, all too aware of my own sin, and yet, indeed, trusting in Christ's righteousness for my own salvation, I was saddened. I was troubled. I was anxious. Well, from texts like what we have before us today and what I read to you from 1 John, this preacher, as well-meaning as he may have been, was lying. He was not telling the truth. Maybe it was unwitting. But what he ended up doing was calling this young convert to a life of false repentance. This young convert actually came to deceive himself into believing that he was crushing it. Because he needed to say that in order to feel like he could be a Christian. I can't tell you how many times I have preached in churches around the country. And I know people just secretly groan because they feel like the things that they've done are just too bad or they're just too sinister to be acknowledged. And so they, they learn to pretend. They come into church and either everything's like, hey, everything's great. How you doing? Great. You know, big cheese smile as you walk in. You can't ever just be real. You can't be honest. You can't say, man, I really struggled this week. I've fallen. I've given in to temptation and I wish I hadn't. Everything's a show and a facade. You know, I've, I've, I've seen it. But man, when it comes down to it, when they really, when they put their head down on the pillow at night and they get a moment to think about themselves, if they put their phone down for just a second and stop giving in to the distraction and they actually think about it, they know they've got stuff that is eating them alive from the inside but they don't feel safe to share. And so, we confess our sins around this joint. That's just what we're going to do. Because I refuse to be a part of a church that creates fake, plastic Christians that pretend like they don't have struggles. It's not, it's not the kingdom of God. It's not what true repentance looks like. Also, if you're a truly repentant person, you, then, then you, you do receive the washing of baptism. This is, this is one of those texts where you see that. The people of Jerusalem weren't just going to hear the word preached or to confess their sins, but they were going out for cleansing. Verse 11 tells us he was baptizing them with water for repentance. Of course, John's baptism was a baptism in preparation for the first coming of Jesus. Our baptism is in preparation for the second coming of Jesus. John says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. By the way, folks, let me just say this as an aside. 
There, when I was growing up, I don't know if this is still the same thing, but when I was growing up going to youth group, there was an awful lot of songs in the youth group that asked the Lord to set us on fire. I want to be on fire for you, Lord. I, got, I know, I'm not trying to be ticky-tack, I promise. I know what was meant, like they wanted to be passionate. But if you read fire in the context of most of Scripture here, it's not something that you want. It is the language of judgment. It is the language of bad news for you. Thank God he doesn't answer our prayers in some of those songs. Anyway, the baptism that Jesus brings is one that imparts the Holy Spirit of God to a person. The baptism that Jesus brings is one that separates the wheat from the chaff, the believer from the unbeliever. Therefore, Scripture speaks of baptism this way. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Romans 6 pictures it this way. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? There is a death and resurrection that happens there. It separates the old man from the new man. We were buried in baptism, it says. The point is that the truly repentant person submits themselves to such a thing because they know they do need cleansing from their sins. They confess their sins. Where do they get the cleansing from their sins? But in those waters. On the other hand, those who practice the false repentance that's shown in our text from these guys, they may even submit themselves to baptism. But they don't connect the act with faith. They don't really believe in what they're doing. But the truly repentant person sees it as, as part of their lifeblood. Luther said this, a Christian life is nothing else than a a daily baptism, begun once and continuing ever after, for we must keep at it without ceasing, always purging whatever pertains to the old Adam so that whatever belongs to the new creature may come forth. So the truly repentant person submits to the, the cleansing that this baptism brings and depends upon God's word to continue his work of cleansing Oh, and this, this also is important. Uh, if you're a truly repentant person, then you will produce fruit. John makes that abundantly clear in the passage, right? When he calls out the fakers, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you. Here's the deal. On the one hand, we Christians don't believe that in this life we're going to reach sinless perfection. I think I've spend enough time talking about that and making the case for it, we will struggle with sin for the rest of our lives, yes. And we'll confess our sin for the rest of our lives, yes. But that's the point. Christians do struggle with sin. And through that daily struggle, God conforms us more and more to the person he's created us to be in Christ Jesus. So Romans 6, again, right after the passage about our baptism, what God did there, says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Fruit will come. It's his fruit. Remember, it's not fruit of the new, create, new creature, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit's work. Fruit will come. 
On the other hand, that the fake repentance, repenters certainly will not bear fruit, especially from this text. They give excuses. John brings up one of them. Don't presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. Why does he say that? Because a predominant view at the time was, since someone was Jewish, that they were already sort of guaranteed access to heaven by the very fact that they were born into the right lineage. John says, not so fast. Or I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and he goes on. In other words, sure, you may say your repentance. Sure, you may be a son of Abraham physically, guys, but the problem for you is is that your life doesn't bear the fruit of repentance, of that relationship to Abraham. Judgment's coming. No matter how much you may have fooled yourself into thinking it won't for you. And when John says these stones could be turned into sons of Abraham, that could be, he could just be literally looking at rocks. But it could also be, based on what sometimes Gentiles were referred to in the first century, sometimes they were referred to as worthless, like stones. It could be John alluding to the fact that, hey, the lineage isn't going to matter in this new kingdom. You can come from any background on any place in the world, and that's not what's going to matter. What's going to matter is faith and the work of God. So, gang, let's add it all up. You heed the word, you confess your sins, you've been baptized, you've got some fruit coming out of your life. Maybe it's just like a tiny little, you know, kumquat or something, but it's a little fruit, man. You got some fruit. You got some fruit. It's not a watermelon, but it's something. And you say, okay. You say, I'm truly repentant. I've done it. But hold on. In truth, though what I've described might be true of some of your life, isn't it also still true? That if we're honest, we're kind of both people in this text. Isn't there a little Pharisee wiggling around in there that ignores or disobeys the preached word of God? You know what it says. That you ignore it or stuff it down when it gets uncomfortable. Isn't it easy just to become too self-reliant and not to confess our sins? Though we've received baptism, are we really producing fruit? I, I mean, we, I think we're a lot like our friend Samuel Johnson at the beginning of today's message. And that repentance don't stick. And because of this, if we're out of us, we're honest, none of us really can say that we're repentant enough. But John says if our, if our repentance, unless our repentance is true and genuine, then, I mean, he doesn't mince words. It's like, a, you know, it's like hellfire. It's, you know, hell and brimstone and fire. It's, it's, it's tough. Jesus says unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you have no part in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean for you and I? Is there anyone truly repentant enough? 
for, I think for the answer to that question, you have to keep on reading in the text. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now remember what John's baptism was for. John's got every reason to be like, no, 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 no. You're not, you don't belong here. It was for repentance, folks. You, you, could, you only could repent of sin, but Jesus doesn't have any sin, or at least he's not supposed to. And then that's why you hear the surprise in John's voice. No, Jesus, I'm not baptizing you. That's not part of the plan. You can't have sin here. You're supposed to be the Lamb of God, the spotless one who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, he is. He is. When Jesus shows up at the baptism, he doesn't have any sin of his own that needs to be repented of. So, so what is going on? Jesus responds, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, folks, Jesus didn't just come to die for you, but he came to live for you. Every breath of his existence is done in your stead as well, including even repenting for you. What is Jesus doing as he shows up to this baptism of repentance? He is repenting on your behalf, or as he says it, fulfilling all righteousness for you. And the proof is what happens when he goes into those waters. We don't know how many people went into those waters before, but one thing we don't ever hear reported is God saying anything in response to them going in. But when Jesus goes in, God speaks. Because there in Jesus, he sees a truly sinless offering, one who is truly repentant, for, not for his own sins, but for the sins of humanity, for your and my sins. And therefore, the heavens are opened. The Spirit of God descends like a dove resting on him. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In Christ, the Father is well pleased. Perfect repentance on your behalf. Where our repentance is so often half-hearted and not nearly good enough, Jesus is always was. He's done it. So to live a life of repentance is really nothing else but to trust that his work is enough for us. I'll wrap it up here. I think it looks a little, a little bit like Rick Hoyt. And this might be a little controversial for you. I'm just warning you because it's not going to give you any skin in the game, fellas. It's just not going to do it. But I think it works. Rick Hoyt was born with uh, cerebral palsy. And as a result, has always had, a, of course, a twisted up body, unable to walk, unable to transport himself anywhere. And yet, amazingly, he participates in triathlons. Now, how? How can he participate in triathlons? 
I'll tell you how. This is true. The reason Rick Hoyt can race at all is because of Dick Hoyt, his father. Rick's father places him in a boat and pulls him for two and a half miles in the water. When Dick bikes the 112 miles of the race, Rick is seated with him, and when Dick runs the 26 miles of the marathon, the entire time he's pushing his boy, Rick, in a wheelchair to the finish line. You see, to, to truly repent in your life is, is not so much based on your, your ability to crush it. It's based on your ability to rest in the arms of your father and let him fulfill the promise he's given you to take you to the finish line. That it's to believe when Jesus says, when the Apostle Paul says, that he who began a, work, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, that he actually means it. That he doesn't have his fingers crossed behind his back, like, maybe, if you, no, he means it. And if he began a good work in you, he's going to finish it. You trust in that, and you're living the life of repentance. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us now as we prepare to come to your table. What a perfect picture. Body given for us. The blood shed for us. What a perfect picture of us depending on what you have done in order to even repent us as it were. To do the work in order to bring us to the finish line. Lord God, help us to trust that you will indeed do it. We come to you as children, Lord, dependent upon you. And thus we pray with one voice together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.